Trainer Bob Baffert already has three imposing Kentucky Derby hopefuls. Could the fourth, and based on his purchase price, the best of all of them still be on the horizon? We'll talk about Cezanne. Plus, with some tracks operating during the shutdown and a few more big tracks moving toward reopening, what effect has being the only game in town had on horse racing in general? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll out. And they're off. As they move to the top of the It's a hit-bumping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And could you imagine if your reviews help just one member at America's Best Racing each day discover this show? Why, we could make In The Gate into a movement! But I'm not sure they'd understand positive change over there if it bit them in the butt. Trainer Bob Baffert has won five Kentucky Derbies two of which, of course, have produced Triple Crown winners. Last year, he had three pretty good chances to win a record-tying sixth derby, but the best he could do, even after the disqualification, was fifth with Improbable. This year, Baffert already has three very formidable challengers. Charlatan is going to run them off their feet and win the Arkansas Derby. Authentic is undefeated as he will romp in the San Felipe, a very easy two and a half lengths. It is Nadal undefeated and the Arkansas Derby winner. Baffert also trains Thousand Words, who seems like he'll run shorter distance races, probably sprints. But since the Kentucky Derby this year will be run on the first Saturday of September, not May, there is a chance that we have not even seen the Kentucky Derby winner start yet. The oh-by-the-way colt in Bob Baffert's barn just happens to be a little guy who cost $3.6 million at a two-year-old auction last March in Florida. That check came from Coolmore, the mammoth racing and breeding outfit based in Ireland. That pricey colt is named Cezanne, named for the legendary French artist. The colt is a son of two-time Horse of the Year Curlin, and he was training well last summer, but then went to the sidelines with what Baffert said was nothing serious. In a normal year, Cezanne may have become Baffert's next version of Arrogate. You remember Arrogate, don't you? Arrogate and American freedom will turn for home. The stable mates are 1-2 here in the Travers. Gunrunner is third, connect is fourth. It is Arrogate and Mike Smith. Oh, they've opened up a five, a six-length lead here with one furlong to run. They've left the field reeling behind. American freedom and Gunrunner are fired behind Arrogate. What a commanding performance he won the Trevor's by 12! Arrogate was also slow to come around and didn't run in any of the 2016 Triple Crown races. Once the summer hit, though, Arrogate took off, winning the Travers at Saratoga, as you heard, the Breeders' Cup Classic, and then the Dubai World Cup the next March. In this topsy-turvy year, Cezanne might still be able to do what Arrogate was not, 
And to tell us more about the potential of Cezanne, we welcome in Monique Delk, sales director of Newcastle Farm near Ocala, the place where Cezanne was broken and first raised, and from where he was consigned. Bob Baffert said he spoke to Newcastle's late owner, J.J. Krupe, a few days before he died, to ask about Cezanne. He said he had a lot of good horses, but not one like him. What do you think Mr. Krupe meant by that? So, from the time the horse arrived at the farm, he just presented himself in a very classy, distinctive way. You can kind of tell. They, they carried themselves in a way of, he was just very well-behaved, very easy to break. He took all of his lessons very well. And he was very fast naturally. You know, so once you teach them their cues, you know, to learn degrees and whatnot, we didn't have to do a lot of practicing with him. He definitely had it naturally. What was it like to raise him? He was a very easy keeper, honestly. He was very well-behaved. Um, you know, early on, you still are able to give them turnout time in the paddocks and let them be horses, you know. So I guess originally he was scheduled to go to the September sale with Hillendale. And for whatever reason, St. Elias decided not to sell him. They sent him to the farm with the rest of the yearlings that we had purchased throughout that sale for for St. Elias Stables and Ripoli and um, a few other clients there. So he arrived with everybody else. They kind of go through the same regiment. Um, we break the race horses the same as we do the sale horses. And then around December, the end of December, we start to veer off. The ones that are going to the sale get on a little bit of a different program. You know, the ones the race horses stay the same. So they toyed back and forth with, you know, we had a few horses for St. Elias that year that we were going to be able to present at the auctions. And this was one of them. And he just, he did everything right from day one. He was an exemplary student, very nice to be around. He was well-behaved and just very talented. You could see the talent immediately. As we mentioned, Suzanne is a son of Curlin. His mother is Achieving, a daughter of Bernardini, who won four major stakes, of course, in 2006, including the Preakness. What specifically about Suzanne's breeding drove the price tag for him up so high? You know, when you have a pedigree like that, it's very important. But the horse has to match the pedigree. And I think he just checked all the boxes. The way he breathed was amazing. After the breeze, it's funny because the rider that breathes the horse, you know, they pull up on the backside and I have my pony guy back there. And she said, just walk back, walk back slow. And she goes, she just didn't feel like they had gone that fast. He does it so effortlessly and his stride is so huge that she was like, oh my God, I, you know, I thought he was going to really breathe fast. And then when they told her how fast that he actually went, she was just surprised because he does it so effortless, you know, and he, he'd been that way all along. It's a super, super nice horse to be around. Suzanne would not have been ready to go had the Kentucky Derby been run on time this year, of course. And the saying you hear in racing is that sons of Curlin are late to come around. What does that mean? I find it to be very true. The, the, the couple of Curlins that we broke at the farm seem to have that same pattern. They developed a little later. They matured a little bit later. They're very big, physical, beautiful horses, but mentally they're, some, they're just not there sometimes. Vino Rosso is a perfect example of that with Curlin. He got better, you know, the older he got and the more experience he got was the same. Now, Suzanne, after he was sold, he went to Ashford for a few months where they gave him a little time off. He had some shins that were stinging him a little bit after the sale. It's hard, you know, what they go through down there. 
So he was given that luxury of having a, a few months to just kind of regroup and grow up, which I thought was wonderful. So they brought him back slowly, you know, and I've been following his breathing. He's been breathing pretty consistently. They gave him about three weeks off, maybe about a month ago. It seemed like that there was a, a lull in his breathe work, but he's been back strong now for the past three or four weeks again. And they've made, they've uh, stretched his distance out. So I'm thinking, I'm hoping that if all goes well, you know, he'll be within the month or so. If they find a spot for him to run, that would be great, you know. And like you said, this derby being delayed, it's kind of made it a little bit tricky now. You know, you're going to have some horses that are coming on that didn't start early that may be contenders. We're chatting here on In the Gate with Monique Delk of Newcastle Farm near Ocala, Florida. Newcastle was the early home of Suzanne, whom Bob Baffert hopes will become yet a fourth Kentucky Derby prospect for him when the race is run in September. Newcastle already has had the experience of raising a Derby winner, always dreaming the winner three years ago spent his formative years with Newcastle. And Newcastle's also raised champion horses Liam's Map and Uncle Mo and Little Mike, among others. How does Suzanne compare with these champions? I would compare him right up there with, with all those mentioned. He's got every bit as much talent as they had. Um, his presence was the same. I, I think he's right there with them. I think this is a very, very talented, very nice horse. Last May, just a few days after that fateful conversation with Bob Baffert about Suzanne, Mr. Krupe, J.J. Krupe, died at the age of 79. One of his philosophies of training always was the best broken horse is often the winner. How would you describe the eye for talent that the late Mr. Krupe had? So I've known Mr. Krupe my whole life. He was a best friend of my father as I grew up. And I started working for him about 10 years ago after my father passed. So not only is, was he my boss, but he was my mentor and a, a very, very dear friend. And I don't know that I've been around anyone that has the eye that he has. He was absolutely amazing. And it was an honor to be able to work with him, to be quite frank, going to the sale together and just watching the way he looks at a horse. He just gets a feeling about a horse. You know, obviously there's things that you check the boxes. There's certain people that get this sense about an animal by just looking in their eye. And he definitely had that talent. I was very blessed to be able to spend these last 10 years to be closely working with him. It was truly an honor. Since Suzanne is part of Mr. Krupe's final two-year-old crop, what would this Colt's success mean to the employees at Newcastle Farm? Oh, it would mean the world. It would mean the world. The whole year has just been kind of a tribute to him. You know, from this sales topping Colt selling in March, you winning the Breeders' Cup Classic with Vina Rosso towards the end of the year. It's all been very bittersweet. I know he would be absolutely over the moon about it. It would mean a lot. It would mean a lot to his legacy. Last year, Suzanne became the highest price horse at auction since 2006. You remember that one, right? The bidding war that resulted in the world record $16 million paid for the Green Monkey, who was a dud both on the track and at stud. The prospects look far brighter for Suzanne. So thank you so much, Miss Doug, for giving us some insight onto this much-anticipated cult. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. It feels like 1920 instead of 2020. Horse racing is the only major sport running on a daily basis during this shutdown, and more tracks are almost ready to come back online. What has that meant for the sport? We'll get a progress report when we come back. 
Welcome back to In the Gate. Back in the Roaring Twenties, the 1920s, there were really just three major sports in this country. Major League Baseball, which rode the crest of Babe Ruth's soaring home runs to immense popularity. Major boxing matches, but they were not every day. And horse racing. Immense crowds at almost every track were common. It was the only sport on which you could legally bet, of course. And even among sports you could illegally bet, the NFL had just formed in 1920 but was a blip on the radar. College football was popular, but not like it is today. And forget about the NBA. The forerunner to the NBA, the Basketball Association of America, wasn't even formed until after World War II. So day to day, it was baseball and horses. Fast forward to 2020 during this COVID-19 shutdown. Horse racing is in an even better position in some ways. While it's been hard to keep racing for those who never shut down or start back up, in the case of tracks like Santa Anita, Churchill Downs, and Belmont Park, there's practically no competition for the sports viewer. All the major sports are shut down right now, and the only indication of a resumption of competition, at least at the time we're recording this, is the Ultimate Fighting Championship. We're still a ways away, presumably, from the start of the baseball season and possibly a resumption of basketball and hockey. So, what has this meant for horse racing, particularly here in the United States, in the two months since the world basically shut down? To give us an idea, we welcome in here to win the gate Alex Waldrop, the CEO of the National Thoroughbred Racing Association, which is one of the main advocacy groups and event organizers for the sport. And full disclosure. One of the ways the NTRA connects with the public is by publishing weekly polls of the top ten three-year-olds and all horses in general. I am a voter in those polls, but voters are not paid. We saw a few metrics that indicate some people are migrating to horse racing. You know, the Arkansas Derby Day at Oaklawn, forty-one million. New York Racing says it's signed up seven times more new subscribers to its wagering service in the past three weeks than the rest of the year combined. Those are a couple of measures. What other numbers? What other metrics can you share with us to show how racing is being affected by this shutdown? Well,、uh, th- those are great metrics, and it is certainly an opportunity. For horse racing, the time when there's so few other sports options, for us to grab the attention of fans who may or may not be familiar with us, and certainly we've he- heard anecdotally from around the country that, that that's making a big difference. Being on NBC Sports on the weekend is a big plus. We also are on Fox Sports One. That kind of exposure is very valuable to the business, and it's bound to lead to, to new following. Nonetheless. Overall, the industry has has contracted drastically. At this time of year, you could expect somewhere in the neighborhood of forty to forty five tracks that would be up and operating, and we would be generating somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars a month, just a little shy, about eight hundred million dollars a month in handle, and that's not happening right now. You're going to see big increases at Arkansas in Arkansas at Oaklawn Park. You know, I think they doubled their previous record for Arkansas Derby Day. Uh, so at a huge day, we're seeing, we're seeing field sizes that are much fuller fields, and that's a great thing in horse racing. Betters love full fields, and full fields attract more wagering. Things that we we thought we knew about field size are proving to be true because there are fewer racing opportunities, so you have more horses 
coming at each race and you so you're racing with 10 12 horse fields that's a good thing but again overall there are fewer numbers you don't have racing in new york and california right now those are or anywhere frankly on the mid-atlantic so their declines we are doing two things at the ntra that we think are important this at this point in time number one we are working hard in washington dc to make sure that employees owners trainers jockeys everybody in this business racetracks horse farms everybody who's being negatively affected has a fair chance at receiving some of this emergency uh we just learned that the eidl the economic injury disaster loan program had locked out farms has now reopened a new application process just for farms so we're we're pushing the paycheck protection program for tracks right now so that they can seek some relief and for their employees and keep some of those employees employed just like every other business. And so we're working on that front. At the same time we're working there, we're also working to to provide best practices for racing officials using only essential personnel. As you saw in Arkansas, we've got two primary contributors to this business. There would be no horse racing if we didn't have betters people who are willing to bet on horse racing, and owners. Those two groups are, are essential. The bettors have had a good time of it. Uh, they've had five, six, or seven, or eight sometimes tracks uh, that are open. They're not tracks that they're used to betting. Fauner Park was not a track that was on a lot of people's uh, radar uh, before now, but they have they've been in the spotlight for the last several weeks. Will Rogers down. They've been in the spotlight as well. So betters are finding their way to the windows and that's good. And they like again, full, full fills, but there's not enough of it to, uh, to really uh, make the difference. Really. It's, it's something that we've been saying to the industry for some time, which is the health department officials and the politicians are reacting to what they see on the ground. And when you have a significant breakout, like you've seen in New York, it's going to make it hard for Naira to get up and operating because you do have a significant spread in that community. But we're working, and uh, our, our goal is to get folks uh, more opportunities for racing so that we can protect owners, racetracks, get them back racing. The last piece of the puzzle is the sales companies. Those are important to the business. That's that's really where business is conducted. That's the, that's the agribusiness side of, uh, of this very uh, complicated, uh, fascinating business. You were talking about the tracks getting back up and running. I'm not clear, what role is the NTRA playing in advocating for the tracks that have not been able to start back up? Well, that's a bit tricky for us. It's a national organization, so we're giving them best practices. Here are the things that other tracks have done. Here are the things that have been successful. But it's not the case. The NTRA uh, rarely enters into a, an individual state and lobbies a governor or a health department simply because we don't live there, which is why we're focused more on the emergency legislation and why we're focused on getting the financial support uh, to the to the racetracks. That's where, that's where we can be of greatest service because that's where we have staff. That's where we have a voice, a long-time voice there. Uh, we have the our uh, horse pack, our political action committee that's been active for more than 15 years and uh, that's an essential part of having a legitimate, uh, recognized public affairs program at the at the federal level. At the local level, what we primarily do is give information and best practices and support. Our showing up, coming to town, and advocating for a particular racetrack is typically unnecessary. 
uh, but some cases it may be un- unwelcome. Uh, and it's always fraught with some risk for the interior because we're never sure. There may be multiple members there with different pr- approaches. Uh, so we, we generally defer to members when it comes to, to their state. Now, if someone wants us to come there and give them support, do some advocacy, give some economic impact numbers, we'll do that, absolutely. But as far as me personally, why being Governor Bashir here in Kentucky, no, that, that wouldn't um, – I wouldn't have really any particular influence in that in that matter. And most tracks are very capable of advocating for themselves. I would say that racetracks, because they're state regulated, are very familiar with the political waters and navigating those waters. But based on what you were saying before, I mean, you know, I understand what you're saying, but you don't think that if say, Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys was having a problem locally in Texas and Roger Goodell went down there to advocate on his behalf that it wouldn't have any influence? Well, if, keep in mind that that, that, that analogy doesn't really work because you know, football is not state-regulated. Uh, other than, you know, maybe they, well, actually, to my knowledge, other than just general rules that apply, you don't really have that sort of thing in uh, football. It's one of the beauties of professional sports uh, outside of uh, our uh, of horse racing is that they aren't state regulated. So they make pronouncements and do things that have national impact, affect local communities. But even there, I assure you that the racetrack, a guy like Jerry Jones, has a great deal more say about what happens in that community than a guy like uh, Roger Goodell would. So when I go into the community, I have to be mindful of the fact that this is a highly rated, regulated industry, and there are state and local officials who they work with every single day just to open and operate their business. If there's a need on a particular issue from a national perspective, hey, well, how does this look relative to – how does our program look relative to other programs? Yeah, that may be something. I haven't been asked to do that. If I were, I certainly would. Most often, we try to give them as much information. I'm not arguing against being involved. I will be there in a heartbeat if they think there is a role for the interior to play that can provide specific information that's going to move the football down the field, if you will, to to go back to your football analogy. Uh, But for me, picking up the phone and calling the governor's office here in Kentucky probably wouldn't be a welcome thing unless they asked me to do it and they said, I need you to do this one particular thing. You need to contact this person and tell them how we compare with the rest of the nation in terms of our protocols. And that's the sort of thing, if asked, we'd certainly do that. Absolutely. What kind of comprehensive push has the sport made during the shutdown to say to the larger sports world, we're here, enjoy us, and to prevent these customers that just fell into your lap from falling out of your lap when the other sports come back? Well, I think that uh, the the groups that have been doing that most aggressively are the ADWs, our Advanced Deposit Wagering Companies, TVG, Twins, ExpressBet, those entities who are actually conducting the wagering at this point in time. And I think that to a, uh, every one of those groups has, has their own promotion, and they've been out there, they've been pushing that aspect very strongly. So you've seen there have been mostly private undertakings. As far as the industry is concerned, uh, traditionally, you know, you haven't seen television advertising. What you have seen, however, are two major sports networks pick up horse racing, show it on air, and push people to the online wagering entities, which hasn't happened in the past. For years and years, when we were on NBC, the wagering was something they didn't talk about, and they wouldn't mention. Well, those days are gone. So when you're on NBC Sports now on a Saturday afternoon, or if you're on Fox Sports 1, wagering is a big component of it. And all they do is talk about how to make a bet. 
those are the kinds of things that that work that are great to have that kind of exposure on those television television networks. It hasn't happened on ESPN because we don't have racing on ESPN at this point in time. We used to had a great relationship with ESPN for many years, but without that relationship, we don't have access, so we don't we don't see that uh, as as often. So we're now relying on two networks. So I, I think that, that the industry's done a great job of promoting that, and you can see that from the way the handle is, uh, is picked up. Look at, again, back to the Arkansas Derby. They doubled handle on and all of that was done remotely. Not a single dollar was bet online. I, pardon me, on track. Every nickel was bet online, and they doubled the handle for the day. So it's going to be good. Alex Waldrop, the CEO of the National Thoroughbred Racing Association, joins us here on In the Gate. And you were talking about the Arkansas Derby metric, and that shows, obviously, that sports fans are looking for a Jones. But, I mean, beyond NBC Sports and Fox that show racing, where is the blanketing of the general public to educate the novice fans on how to bet and that racing is here? It just seems like this should be a time to go all out and and find every fan you can find at this point. You'll never have an opportunity like this again. Well, again, I think that's been that's been occurring. Uh, it's been occurring through those uh, tracks and and ADWs who are up and operating and who are out there uh, making those the, those efforts. Now, as far as a, a national ad campaign, television ad campaign, or something of that nature, you're talking twenty to thirty million dollars and. That those dollars don't exist. So our focus has been on getting tracks back up and operating and bringing more people and more exposure. And I think, I think the Derby weekend went wonderfully for this industry because you had a lot. NBC was promoting other tracks. They were showing other tracks racing. They did the, the virtual uh, Derby, all of that. But they kept talking about online wagering and those opportunities. It, you know, it's those are the kinds of things that matter because we know that. Many more people will, will tune in to watch those those Derby Day broadcasts uh, than they will watch this all year round. So it it has been a uh, an unfortunate missed opportunity for us to lose the, our our Triple Crown season in some respects. We'll get it back in the fall. Not sure exactly what we'll get uh, from the Preakness and the Belmont. So those are our primary marketing opportunities for the year. Television being the primary driver. I was glad again to see what they did because it drove people back to the business and reminded them of that business. And the handle reflected it. Again, the handle on uh, the um, NBC Sports broadcast was uh, on races, followed by NBC Sports was great. Arkansas Derby was a huge day. So I think those are the kinds of experiences that we want. We're, we're very pleased with that. Speaking of betting and, and handling, with time to reflect a bit during the shutdown, what kind of conversation has there been in the effort to make betting racing more attractive for the fan financially in terms of lowering takeout, rebates, and things like that? Well, I mean, it's always a, a discussion in the business. There, there's no question that there's a, uh, the pricing decisions are, are, again, they're local. But I know that tracks are always looking at opportunities. Uh, and I know that uh, horse players are always pointing out the opportunities. And that's, a, that's an ongoing discussion in the business. Pricing is probably as contentious as anything we have in the business on a daily basis. If you have talk to the average horse player, they're going to they're going to um, you know have a certain view on takeout and how much the, the better should be receiving. And we convinced the federal government, the IRS, and the Treasury Department that this was unnecessarily burdensome to the business, and so they now uh, have 
modified their withholding and reporting. They haven't gotten rid of it. They simply have modified it to reflect the way they had structured the withholding rules. Virtually every one of those bets uh, ended up with a withhold, with, with reporting and withholding, and that discouraged people from betting. Not you know, not because people didn't want to pay their taxes, but because more often than not, once the government got their money, they couldn't get it back. It's just incredible how. Once the government was getting our players' money, they weren't getting the money back. And the government realized that. They were being taxed. We were being overtaxed and unfairly taxed. So they removed that. That's the thing we've been focusing on at the national level to make sure that, that we're not discouraging people from betting. How, the, how tracks price their product, I think tracks know they understand the concept of optimal uh, pricing. They understand that sometimes less is more. That they bring the price down, you're going to sell more of the product. And they certainly understand that. And then we encourage tracks to to experiment and make sure that happens. Alex Waldrop, CEO of the NTRA, thank you so much as we try to negotiate a way out of this COVID-19 shutdown. Very my pleasure. Anytime. Glad to come on and talk. Our thanks once again to Alex Waldrop and Monique Delk. The worldwide shutdown clearly is hurt, but for most of the Northern Hemisphere, the weather in March didn't scream to go outside. A nice day here or there, but mostly chilly with brisk winds. But as old man winter's grip on us subsides, the temperatures get nicer and our wish to congregate grows more tempting with every passing day. The backyard barbecues, perhaps some Shakespeare in the park, and picturesque spots to which we go away. For me, the one that will really hurt is no trip to Saratoga, that life-restoring mountain air retreat that comes alive in summer with the best racing in the country. Any spot in that grandstand is the greatest seat. I know we all must do our part to keep everybody safe, and I won't be the one to drop the ball, but man, no Saratoga trip will make the summer empty. What experience will you miss most of all? You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. Maybe even the folks at America's Best Racing, and maybe those Mensa members will one day include us in the Fan Choice Awards like they should. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.